Ameda Ena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. The telecom industry has been around for over a hundred years, from radio to television to the internet. It is crucial to how we work. Since it has been around for such a long time, there are a lot of challenges in how hardware and software products are developed in this space. Heather Kirksey, Linux Foundation VP, joins us to talk about this and explains how deployment of services is accelerated through network services. We talked about network function virtualization, also known as NFV, among other things. I hope you like this episode. Heather Kirksey, Linux Foundation VP of Network Function Virtualization and Director of OPNFV is joining us today. Heather, welcome to the Women in Tech Show. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Today we're going to be talking about network function virtualization. But for this, I want to start first with a background of the telecom industry, mostly what problems they have or how do they work. If you can start by giving a background of the telecom industry. Yeah, if you probably wanted to reach back in time, you know, a lot of the stuff that we care about, obviously, you know, the the telephone, you know, many of the companies, you know, were originally telephone companies, you know, back in the day. And then also um, a lot of people get high-speed internet from the folks who originally were designed to uh, give us uh, cable TV. And then mobile came along. So, you know, many of these companies are, are very old companies that have been, serving up communications in one way or another for over a hundred years, which is the strength of them, but also I think kind of where a lot of the issues are. A lot of the networks that are out there have evolved over time, most particularly several years ago when high-speed internet and database services came into play. That was a huge transition point, and all the equipment that's out there in the networks Uh, basically has been built up, you know, over the course of a great deal of time to deal with sort of the changing needs of data communication, the rise of things like video streaming, the rise of mobile data and the expectations of mobile speed, such that right now the networks of the service providers have a lot of uh, network elements in them, which are uh, basically purpose-built pieces of equipment that deliver services, but most of them are very custom, very vertically integrated, and can only sort of deliver one service. So it makes it very hard to manage and very hard to roll out new services, which is the situation that brought us to uh, network function virtualization, or NFV, mm-hmm. as we refer to it, you know, sort of brought it into being. So what you're saying is, It's good these companies have been around for a hundred years because they have a lot of experience in this area, but it can also be a weakness to change and try maybe new things faster. Is that yeah, I think you know, I mean part of it's certainly, you know, cultural when you become a large company, but a lot of it's, you know, technical just because the way the networks have grown up. Okay. Um, it means that there's a lot of manual work um, and sometimes high a capex investment required for rolling out new services you know at the same time that bandwidth use mm-hmm, is yeah. is growing you know astronomically and people are also expecting 
you know, reasonably so from a consumer perspective, that the cost of that bandwidth, you know, will not also be increasing astronomically. Okay. And what you're saying is traditionally these companies have services that they make available to their customers through their proprietary hardware? Right. Yeah. So that if you think about how something like the internet works, all the or something like uh, mobile internet works, the pieces that make it up, it's this uh, sea of acronyms of different types of network elements that each do like one specific part in the chain. And they're vertically integrated, so they can't scale out and in. They're not elastic. Um, the way that they're integrated to the back end of the subscriber management systems is very complex and very manual. And what will be some examples of these services that traditionally get deployed to specific hardware? Yeah, so certainly your big three, um, you know, as they call them, you back in the day when people referred to triple play services, so your high-speed internet voice, whether that is trying to emulate traditional voice or voice over IP or mobile voice, and then certainly video. And you know, one of the huge shifts that's happened in video over the past couple of years is we've gone from a broadcast model of television to a unicast streaming model where folks are using you know, services like Netflix or Amazon Prime you know, and expecting you know, sort of personalized custom video experiences streaming to them and only to them at any given time. And that, that puts a huge, huge strain on the network mm-hmm. as it was currently architected. Okay. And are there any advantages of these companies putting their services in their specific hardware, proprietary hardware? So some of the advantages are that you know, many of these systems were designed from the ground up you know, for their purpose, right? It's the benefit of specialization. Um, you know, if you think about a really big internet router, you know, it was designed for the purpose of getting as many packets through as fast as possible, you know, or something like, you know, all the different elements involved in mobile. It was to ensure that you're able to, you'll be close enough to subscribers so that you get good, good voice quality, and that you're able to appropriately apply quality of service, you know, to different types of traffic on the network. And they're, they're really designed for speed, efficiency, and whatever, you know, purpose they're serving. Mm-hmm. You know, also, it's just kind of historical, right? When, you know, everyone started shifting their original landlines to be high-speed internet lines, right? The technology that they came with at the time, you know, just required changes in the network. So, they made the changes necessary then, kind of same thing when mobile was introduced. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just, at the time, the lot, you know, with a lot of these things were put out into the network, the speed of change that we have out there just, you know, wasn't what it is right now. Mm-hmm. So we've been going through a background of the telecom industry. And as I said earlier, the main topic of this episode is going to be network function virtualization. But before we talk about this, it's important to understand the concept of network services. Can you explain what this means? (laughs) Yeah. Um, And it's funny because this is one of those terms that's used ubiquitously and, you know, throw 
50 telecom people in a room and you'll get 50 slightly different answers. Mm -hmm. But the way I like to think of that is that they are services that are, you know, they're communication oriented services and whatever, you know, sort of that means. And that they typically have network intensive requirements. So something like video, for example, right? Like there's a fair amount of video involved, sorry, a fair amount of bandwidth involved in that. And also, right, you know, things need to, packets need to arrive in the right order. They need to arrive with the right quality so that the video experience, you know, when you're watching it on your screen is good. And so it places strain on the network. So I particularly think of network services as ones that make a demand on the network and depend on the sort of connectivity between or amongst groups of people to be kind of the core of what that service is. Do other services like, because when we're dealing with this communications, there are some portions that are probably encrypting things or caching things. Do those also fall under network services? Yeah, I often think of sort of them as kind of features or aspects of network services. But yes, and definitely right now, there are definitely elements in the network that might focus specifically on some of those aspects. I see. Other things could be like security, billing, authorization onto the network. Because mm-hmm. I could definitely see things like encryption be done in the proprietary hardware initially. Yeah. Okay. And also certainly core kind of internet things like routing and switching, obviously. Okay. So we have the network intensive services like streaming, video, and things like that. And we also have this portions crucial to the pipeline, like encrypting things and decrypting things. Mm -hmm. This brings us to network function virtualization. Can you explain what this is? Yeah. So, you know, one of the big trends that has, I think, well, actually, let me back up two big trends that Mm -hmm. have happened in kind of the past, I don't know, I want to say seven, eight years. One is the the rise of, of cloud as a concept, right? So the idea that you can deploy workloads on pretty generic hardware and you scale with hardware out rather than up to sort of, you know, be able to handle more services and that you can do that dynamically and elastically. So you scale up when you need more, you scale down when you need less. So that's been one big trend. The other is what we call software-defined networking, which is decoupling the control of the network. So how the network is managed, how traffic is routed amongst endpoints from the data plane or the actual user traffic going out um, itself. And really, NFV is taking those two trends and using them to enable moving away from proprietary network elements to sort of treating all the things in the network as sort of general pools of compute in order to enable network services. Mm -hmm. So instead of all these special purpose-built custom pieces of hardware that you can turn most of that intelligence that lived in hardware into software intelligence and really start treating the network itself as well as the applications and services that run on the network as cloud software applications. And what is the impact of this in the way these network services are managed? Yeah, 
So the first big one is increased agility Mm -hmm. and also less risk. So on the agility standpoint, you are, you know, because the way that the services are being re-architected with a lot more automation, a lot more similarities, you know, sort of across um, hardware and across service providers, instead of all this really complicated, you know, having to go into the CLI of a hundred different things in order to enable a subscriber or a service, you can just enable these things the way that, you know, IT professionals are used to enabling new applications on the network. So it just makes it a lot easier to roll out. And it also means that you don't have to put special pieces of hardware in the network for new services so that makes it a lot easier to try new things, you know, and do that fail fast, fail often, and then scale up when you find something successful, right? That entire kind of, you know, kind of web scale, Silicon Valley approach mm-hmm. to trying out things. Um, it's really hard for the service providers to do that right now. But if it's just software applications that you can upgrade, that you can deploy, get rid of them if they don't seem to you know, connect with your subscriber base, you haven't gone and put in things on people's sidewalks <laughs> or, you know, gone and dug for new cable or put, you know, special hardware that you had custom built to that purpose out in your network. So it really just enables a lot more freedom, flexibility, and agility. Also, because you're using a white box hardware, you know, just commercial off the shelf stuff, over time, it means that your CapEx. Uh, should be lower as well. What is CapEx? Because you mentioned it earlier, but I forgot to clarify. Yeah, so uh, capital expenditure. So that is expenditure on kind of non-recurring things, non-recurring big ticket items like infrastructure spending or hardware spending. Okay. So what you're essentially saying is network function virtualization is about taking some of this network services that we talked about from this hardware to software, to the cloud? Yes. Okay. What technologies have you seen being used for doing network function virtualization? Yeah, so there are a number of them, and it it seems complicated at first. Well, part of why I'm asking this is I got introduced to you through KubeCon in Austin, Texas, so I'm kind of curious, like, what are they using for... So things, Kubernetes? Yes. So actually, yes. So there's certainly a migration to Kubernetes right now. So uh, when we first started on the NFV journey, it was more VM-based. And certainly the core of what a lot of folks uh, started with early on were definitely very OpenStack-based systems. And I certainly see OpenStack staying around in the network. Um, There's also an interest in uh, taking advantage of container-based systems and some more cloud-native applications. And so, for example, in our last OPNFV release, we introduced a Kubernetes support and Kubernetes integration for the first time. So, you know, generally there are a couple pieces of the puzzle. So you'll basically you'll want your cloud orchestration system whether that's OpenStack or Kubernetes or a combination of both, you'll want what's called an SDN controller. So I mentioned SDN earlier. Mm -hmm. Usually SDN requires a piece of software called a controller that actually 
does the network control piece. And Open Daylight is an open source example of a network controller. Usually you'll also want some form of traffic acceleration, both kind of touching the hardware and then going up to be used by the cloud um, system or the network controller. You know, because if you're using the commercial off-the-shelf hardware mm-hmm. to replace, you know, this, you know, kind of old router big iron, um, you do need to get a lot of packets through quickly. So there are some specific technologies that help with that. And then layered on top of that are some pieces that actually start rethinking how kind of the back office works and bringing more automation into the deployment of the applications and the management of the network and of the subscribers uh, themselves. And you said most of it when you started is based on VMs, but you're moving to containers. Yes. What is the reason you started exploring containers? For two reasons. Um, I think there's a recognition that there are a lot of advantages brought by containers, especially where a lot of the interesting application development work is going on right now, that a lot of that is very container-oriented and container-centric. Also, looking ahead to 5G, a lot of the service providers are going to need to place some of this cloud compute out at what we call the edge, which is in places a lot closer to the subscriber. So some things will remain in the data center. Some things will go out to the subscriber where the compute is a lot more constrained. So I think there's a lot of interest in exploring a more lightweight control plane. Mm -hmm, I see. And does this also translate to costs that moving to container maybe results in some savings? Yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly the hope. You know, I don't think I've seen any particular ROI analysis for telecom in particular, but I think there is an expectation that with sort of the lightweightness of containers, that you'll be able to deploy you know, more applications on the same pool of compute and potentially use it more effectively. Mm-hmm. And you're director of OPNFV. Yes. What is the goal of OPNFV? Yeah, so we were started uh, by a group of service providers as well as a group of both kind of traditional telecom vendors as well as a lot of traditional open source players to basically build up an ecosystem around open source NFV. One of the interesting things is the service providers made a decision when they were going to move to this new software-oriented model that a large part of what they wanted to do was do it in open source. You know, they kind of saw sort of the rise of open source. They saw, you know, how working together sort of across companies, uh, you know, results in better software and you know, sharing that R&D burden and, you know, all of the energy around that. And so they really decided that open source was the way to go. So they approached the Linux Foundation and asked the um, LF to help them get this project started. And that was just over three years ago. Okay. And one of the things you did here is grew the project to include 54 member organizations. What are examples of some of those organizations? Yeah, so some of the traditional telecom operators, people like AT&T, Orange, 
China Mobile. So, you know, your service providers, also the traditional networking providers, people like Cisco, Juniper, Ericsson, Nokia, ZTE, Huawei. As I mentioned, the open source vendors, so people like Red Hat and Canonical and uh, SUSE and Mirantis, and then a lot of silicon vendors, so people like Intel and ARM and a number of uh, folks in the ARM ecosystem as well. So it's sort of a, a range of you know, the service providers, their traditional vendors, as well as new open source players. And I'm really curious how you go about onboarding these member organizations, for example, if you know you're going to focus on this, what is the process to start growing it and including those organizations, like reaching out to them? Is this through your network or through the Linux Foundation? How did you do this? Yeah. So there, you know, I guess, first of all, what's been most interesting to me is there's been this interesting sort of cultural bridging in that the way some of the traditional sort of IT oriented folks and some of the traditional open source software folks sort of approach problems is a little bit different than the way uh, telecom uh, vendors typically have. So a lot of it has been helping each other understand each other's language and then a lot of education to help the more traditional players understand, you know, how to do open source development, um, how to understand the tooling, how to understand the culture around, you know, accepting contributions, mm-hmm. you know, getting a lot of automation, test automation, CICD setup, um, all of that kind of stuff. So just at a, at a really fundamental level, it's been um, education and bridging some cultural divides. Because initially I would think it would be super hard because... Like we said earlier, they've been around 100 years and they might be like, well, we already have this and this works. Like, why would we incorporate you? But like you're saying, as long as you're speaking the same language, for example, if you tell them, oh, I know you have a problem in this area, I can solve it with this tool or by moving to the cloud, right? Yeah. And what's been interesting is actually, you know, our organization was actually started by service providers. Oh, okay. So they actually had sort of recognized this problem themselves mm-hmm. and this sort of original concept of changing how they do the network actually originated within some forward looking individuals within the company. Okay, that's really good. So I guess this is more of, like you said, collaborating together, like they know they want to change and just set a a set of standards and things like that, right? Yeah. So at that point, it becomes more education around, okay, so you've recognized this technical vision. How do you implement it both technically as well as from a process and culture perspective to actually do this collaboration and then to actually you know, start moving internally? Because there are certainly elements in a lot of these companies that are extremely forward-looking. Mm-hmm. There are also some folks in the company that are perhaps less forward-looking. I think, especially in the network operations groups within some of these companies, they tend to be very conservative because their job is to keep the network up. So sort of kind of embracing new technology always requires a certain you know, kind of mindset shift um, within those groups of people. You know, they have regulatory requirements. 
you know, you think about things like, you know, they're keeping the public internet infrastructure up, you know, 911 depends on sort of the network being available. So, I mean, they have some, you know, serious requirements on the network. So they tend to be, once you move from kind of R&D into network operations, they tend to be more conservative. So, you know, I think kind of the next challenge is moving from developing the technology to getting kind of the rest of some of these organizations more comfortable deploying and using them. Mm -hmm. You're leading the open source sort of version of NFV and You've been an open source contributor for 10 years. Have you seen changes in this throughout those years that you've been contributing? Yeah, certainly. And yeah, some of the open source stuff I did before, it was also yeah, fairly telecom specific. Most of my career has been spent in telecoms. You know, I think the the biggest change I've seen is the embrace of open source. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there would be point places where service providers would have it in their network in the past. But to like really imagine their networks like being so fully based on a stack of open source components has been a new thing and also sort of the speed with which open source moves mm-hmm. compared to a lot of the traditional standards organizations that the telecom industry has leveraged has, you know, I think had a fairly serious, you know, it's been a mindset shift, one that shouldn't be underestimated, mm-hmm. I think, to start really collaborating around implementations as opposed to only requirements and to start moving, you know, kind of at the speed that a lot of software companies move at. Okay. And through this 10 years, what were some of the projects that you were contributing to? So um, on the open source side, the main one that I contributed to was the OSGI Residential Experts Group, part of the Eclipse Foundation. Okay. And then I was also very, as I said, very involved in a number of standards activities as well. And that actually probably dates back Ooh, even more than 10 years, that's probably going back almost 15. Yeah, so different types of protocols and standards that the old type of equipment would use to communicate with each other. Okay. And a last question. Do you remember some of your early contributions? I know it might be hard to track down specifics, but what I want to get at is the area where you're on contributions were, for example, was it bug fixes, documentation updates? Yeah, so some bug fixes and honestly a lot, you know, to be blunt, I'm not I'm not that much of a coder. Mm-hmm. It was a lot more around a lot of requirements and architecture. Well, the reason I bring this up is cuz a lot of people might be hesitant to contribute to open source and your early contributions can be a documentation update like that's totally valid. You can get your experience so I was just wondering, like, what area? Well, and one of the recommendations I would make to people, you know, certainly code review, which code review is always in need of people, um, documentation, which it's one of those things that users really need. <laughs> a lot of developers perhaps you know, don't find as fun to do, but it's a good way to make a solid contribution early on as well as to understand um, what's being developed. And really the third area is testing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, thinking about what would be good test cases. So even if your 
still hesitant to maybe even write the tests, you can go and work with folks to come up with and say, here are some ways to exercise this use case or this code, and then work with someone to learn how to implement that in code. Especially when you start talking about these very large-scale systems that important things are going to depend on, this really cannot go out into networks unless it is fully tested. Mm -hmm. And so testing is just, I think, one of those areas that is so important and that can't be understated. Okay, so code reviews, documentation, testing, bug fixes are good ways to get started. Yep. Okay. Well, Heather, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. 